0: My function is to probe for biological infestations, to destroy that which is not perfect. I am Nomad.
1: Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand spanking new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott. And Steve, I'm Scott Nance. I'm
2: Steve Morrison. Is it a brand spanking new episode, or is it an episode that sort of collided with another episode to form something that's similar to
1: another episode, but its programming has actually been changed? Well, that is a well, this is the precursor to the bigger, more expensive episode, (laughs) especially if you're referring to an episode of The Cinephiles, a (laughs) two part episode of The Cinephiles. That's a little hint, but yes, we are doing our deep dive on the changeling which is an episode that i do have to say there are certain episodes that i keep going back to because i just want to just be entertained and i just want an episode that that is a as a great example of the formulas that work so well on star trek and the changeling is absolutely an episode that i've gone back and watched over and over again to this very day how about you steve
2: Um, I mean, certainly I've watched a lot. It's a classic Star Trek episode. It has some of the most iconic Star Trek moments and most memorable moments. And it's funny, what I'll say is this one, for some reason, I liked less. Most of the, most of the episodes that we've done, I've found all sorts of new things, and I did definitely find new things in here, but I didn't enjoy it as much. And I have to say, maybe one of the reasons is we just did the Doomsday Machine. You know, well, it's just two episodes ago.
1: Yeah, well, we, not only did we do the Doomsday Machine, we did a mock time and then the Doomsday yeah. Machine, and it's like, how do you follow those two episodes? But I I, I see what you're saying. I mean, uh, you know, this is uh, an episode that that because we've been taking such a deeper look at. Every single episode we've done thus far, rewatching it with a with a much bigger, like I would say, magnifying glass, uh, has made me has alerted me even more to just how. Derivative. I mean, especially you know, Star Trek: The Motion Picture yeah. is on the Changeling. It's so derivative that fans have referred to Star Trek: The Motion Picture as where Nomad has gone before. <laughs> <laughs> but th- there are so many merits to the Changeling. I really, really do like this episode a lot. It is a uh, it's a bottle show, and it does all right. take place on the Enterprise, uh, which is why the total cost of this episode came in ten thousand three hundred dollars under budget, the budget of 185000 the cost of the changeling was $174,700, so way under budget. It's uh, written by John Meredith Lucas, so that's right, ladies and gentlemen, long before Star Wars had a Lucas, Star Trek had a Lucas. No relation to George mm-hmm. Lucas, John Meredith Lucas, uh, who was a two-time Emmy nominee, and His stepfather, Steve, I'm going to say, is the director of what might be one of your favorite movies, Casablanca. Oh. Michael Curtis. Wow. His stepfather is Michael Curtis. But John Meredith Lucas, this was the beginning of a very deep connection that he had with Star Trek because he also wrote Patterns of Force, A Land of Choice, and That Which Survives – and he directed The Ultimate Computer, A mm. of Joyous, and The Enterprise Incident, and a little bit of obsession, as we'll find out when we do our deep dive on that with that episode's director, Ralph Sinensky. But after Gene Kuhn left as the showrunner of the original series midway through Season 2, John Meredith Lucas became the new showrunner for the back-end of season two. He was also a producer on TV's Ben Casey, The Fugitive in, uh, and Insight, and he was a writer on Zorro, Mannix, and The Six Million Dollar Man. The Changeling was directed by Mark Daniels, who just directed The Doomsday Machine. The air date was September 29, 1967, making it the 32nd episode to air, but it's actually the 38th episode to film, which it did. In six and a half days, one half day over schedule between July 6th and July 14th, 1967. The music score was tracked. The visual effects from the Westheimer Company came in at $6,123.72. But the total visual effects budget was $9,500, which included the building of not one, not two, but three nomads. <laughs> I'm now. I'm
2: trying to think of like I can think of what two of them did. I'm curious because I'm sure they had different purposes, um, and maybe we'll get into that as we get to. Of the show. course, of course,
1: yeah. we will get into that. Uh, but I I really enjoy this episode. It's uh, it's formulaic by Star Trek standards, but the formula is is so very well executed, especially especially at the end. Uh, But John Meredith Lucas wrote his story outline on March 15th, 1967. He revised his story outline the next day. He wrote two draft teleplays, the second of which came in at the end of April 1967. Then D.C. Fontana comes in with her rewrite on May 29th. Gene Kuhn does his rewrite on June 29th. Uh, Chekhov is... uh, Prominently featured in the earlier drafts, but is not in the final episode. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I find this episode to be very, very entertaining, but I think it kind of went down in your assessment a little bit.
2: This is a little bit. Um, you said it was shot between July 6th and July 14th. Would you yes. Like, you know, some of the things going on in the world. Can't wait. Well, what's interesting is we have had week after week after week of huge, huge news stories. Not this one so much. This was not the most exciting uh, week in the world, and I and I'm thinking that maybe the the crew working on Star Trek got to take a little breath after yeah. everything that had gone on. The first thing is that on July seventh, Anne Pellegrino, known as the Flying Housewife, landed in Oakland, California, four weeks after she took off from that same airport and flew around the world in the exact same path that Amelia Earhart was supposed to take oh, is that flying right? in the same plane a Lockheed Model 10E
1: and she came back
2: and she made it so, <laughs> so she made it the whole way around um All You Need is Love, was released in the U.S. Yay, the Beatles. (laughs) On July 8th, the American Independent Party was founded. They nominated George Wallace for president and received 46 electoral votes. That's the last time a party that wasn't Democrat or Republican received electoral votes in the presidential election. Vivian Lee died and oh. she was exactly our age. She was fifty-three years old. Whoa. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you were yeah, you know, someone dies at fifty-three, you go, wait a minute. It's <laughs> uh, how old we are.
2: <laughs> on July twelfth, people saw uh, the police drag an African American out of a cab. This is in Newark, New Jersey. Hmm. A rumor spread that he had been beaten and killed. Five days of rioting ensued. Twenty-three people died. It wasn't true. Oh, it was entirely false information. And this guy had had eight car accidents recently. He was driving with a revoked license, and he was not injured. So, and and, and we've heard this many, many times that there have been these. We've, I've said many times on Enterprise incidents there was a race riot. The police killed an African-American. And these are themes we're dealing with today, and here is one where the information was
1: wrong. Oh, interesting. And, wow.
2: And I, ju- and I just wanted to point it out because we're dealing with that today. We all get information, and sometimes it's not actually correct. Um, the World Intellectual Property Organization was signed to force people to... Re- Respect intellectual property all over the world, and nobody has plagiarized anything ever since. <laughs> sure. Uh, um, the Bee Gees released first, which is their third album, and it's, always, it's so weird. <laughs> That's to confusing. Me. I know, right? And it's—I always have to remind myself. Oh, the Bee Gees, who I think of as a late '70s disco band. Yeah. They were—they were making music in the mid '60s.
1: Yeah. Well, you know how many people probably think that Saturday Night Fever is the yeah. Bee Gees' first album? <laughs> It is definitely not. And that is
2: everything I have while they were shooting well, this.
1: Well, it does seem like there was a little bit of a, of a breather yeah, exactly. uh, going on in the world after the last few episodes, which had so much going on in current events.
2: Would you like to get into the changeling? Let's get into where Nomad, <laughs> where has, Nomad gone before. has gone before. <laughs> well, and right now we're on the bridge of the Enterprise. We haven't heard back from the Malorians. We haven't heard back from some sort of science team. And then
3: the long-range sensor sweep of this system reveals no sign of life. That can't be. The last census reported a total inhabitation of more than four billion people.
1: And this is right after the Do- Planet Killer and the Doomsday Machine wiped out planet <laughs> after planet and civilization after civilization.
2: What's so weird to me is that it's it's you know two episodes after that in production order, and then I went and like, well, maybe they're farther apart in air date order, but they're not. No. It's two. It, it Changeling happened two days, two episodes before. The Doomsday Machine. That's right. It's really strange, but it also, and this is something that maybe we can dig into a little bit. You know, the end of season one had all these episodes that were similar and dealt with similar themes, but dealt with them in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is like, okay, this is actually the same thing again. We have a similar story that we're going to deal with in, that's going to be transformed in a different
1: way. And interesting that the uh, the culprit of those uh, civilization uh, civilizations being wiped out is a whole lot smaller Maybe we need to see
2: D- Nomad versus the Planet Killer. I oh, wonder.
1: right. Who would win? Uh, who would win? Wait yeah. a minute. Now, that's a question for listeners. Yeah. If you were going to take the Planet Killer versus Nomad, who would win? Should go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. Let us know who you think would win, the Planet Killer or Nomad. Who are you betting on? Oh, I'm betting on the Planet Killer. I think I'm betting on Nomad. (laughs)
2: That's a tough one, though. It is tough. It's a very interesting question. Okay, unlike with the Planet Killer, where there was rubble and debris everywhere, there's no signs of anything. Mm. Like, if there had been a disease, if there had been a war, if there had been something, they would have heard something, but they didn't hear anything. And just as they're talking about this, the shields pop up because something is heading towards them. Really fast, it's going at multi-warp speeds. That sounds really fast. Sounds really, really fast. And it's some kind of bolt of energy. We say red alert and we get hit really, really hard. And that is the end of the teaser.
1: That's a big teaser. By the way, when that when that bolt hits the enterprise, you know, normally like you know, if you're watching like Balance of Terror, uh, you know, in an episode where there's there's combat and the enterprise takes a hit and there's the big jolt, you know, and you see everybody go flying across the bridge. But the bolt that hits the Enterprise in the changeling, in this teaser in the changeling, is so it, – it, it is so cataclysmic to the Enterprise. Like, it, it, it really rocks them, like, back and forth and back and forth. Like, that's mm-hmm. if to say, like, this is unlike anything that has hit the Enterprise – and, and it sure is, as we'll find out in the beginning of Act 1.
2: Because in the beginning of the Act 1, we come back, we hear that that had power equal to 90 photon torpedoes. I rest my case. <laughs> but, Scott, is that as powerful as a beam of pure
1: anti-proton? I mean, absolutely pure. So which is more powerful uh, <laughs> to our scientist friends listening to Enterprise Incidents? Pure anti-proton or 90 photon torpedoes. Cast your vote <laughs> <laughs> on Enterprise into this um, Facebook page.
2: And we basically, our shields are down 20%. Three more hits like that, and the shields are out.
4: I'm having to divert the warp engine power into the shield, sir, if you want the protection.
2: And I like that they do a calculation, which is how fast are these beams coming in? It's warp 15. Right. So they go... Camp, out front.
4: But Scotty, we're doing the right
2: thing. And I always, with these like this, I'm like, can't you turn... <laughs> like, like these things are coming in a straight line. You see them coming like thirty seconds before. But if it's locked on
1: target, well, that's the that's the question. Yeah, and I think, yeah. they, and I let's say that they are. Um, well, because like Kirk says, you know, evasive maneuvers to Sulu, and then mm-hmm. you know, and then they he get says, hit, yeah. Sulu, I said evasive maneuvers, and it like they're losing oh, you power. Are.
2: You're right. You're yeah. right. Um, and, uh, and they get hit. The shields are holding, but they do have some kind of location. For this thing, they got some bearings, and so they arm their photon torpedoes. They fire the photon torpedoes. I always love, by the way, it's classic Star Trek. You go arm torpedoes, and the torpedoes are ready. And then there's a pause. Fire. Fire. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what were you
1: waiting for? But well, it was just one torpedo he fired. Oh, really? I thought they
3: fired multiple.
1: No, just it's one. like they, they fired one photon torpedo.
3: Directed. No effect. Target absorbed full energy of our torpedo.
1: So it was one torpedo. Why did they fire like a bunch? Right. Then follow up with like phasers. But it was just one torpedo. Well, you know what? (laughs)
2: Because unlike Matt Decker, Kirk does not reinforce failure. Is that he sees, oh, the torpedoes didn't work. I'm not going to repeatedly shoot the planet killer when my phasers are doing absolutely nothing. I think.
1: That's right. Kirk uh, learns mighty fast.
2: Yeah. Um, And another blast is coming in. I love this line where Kirk asks Mr. Scott, can we take it? And his response is,
4: That's problematical, sir.
2: (laughs) Which I love because, yes, it doesn't matter. We're either going to take it or we're not going to take it. (laughs) Yeah, we're We're going to take it. Either
1: way, hopefully we'll
2: survive. (laughs) Uh, And they do survive, but their shields do not survive. Now they're like, let's try to talk to this thing.
4: To unidentified vessel, this is Captain James Kirk of USS Enterprise. We are on a peaceful mission.
1: So here we have this uh, this moment where Kirk tries to communicate with the oppressor, uh, with whatever is attacking the Enterprise. Communication. Now, they went one step further in some of the earlier versions where they uh, shot some hydrogen, like a hydrogen cloud into space hmm. and projected Kirk's face onto the hydrogen cloud. So the oppressor could see who it was talking to instead of just hearing who was sending this message. So there was supposed to be a visual effect where, like, there's there's an image of Kirk's face on a cloud in space, and they... Th- I think, fortunately, did not use that.
2: That is a really weird, interesting choice. Yeah, yeah, I mean, partially it makes like, why would you, why would you think to do that sort of thing? Like, what difference does it make? Um, but that is, and what's funny is, I can totally see how 1967 technology would make that effect. work. Well. Yeah, yeah, you know you what can I mean. See how that would have worked. In like, if you go to Disneyland, they do that a lot where they'll have a big outdoor show and there's a whole bunch of fog in the air and then they project on the fog and you can actually watch movies on the fog cloud. Oh, that's right, yeah, Yeah, sure. And that's totally 60s Mm -hmm, technology. mm -hmm. Um, But they they don't do that. And we also find out how big this thing is, which it's about a meter tall and it's 500 kilograms, which means that thing is really heavy. It is super, super dense.
1: And we hear,
3: What kind of intelligent creatures could exist in a thing that small?
1: And I love Spock's response.
3: Intelligence does not necessarily require bulk, Mr. Scott.
1: (laughs) Which is basically Spock's way of quoting Yoda, saying, size matters not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Captain, we're getting a signal from the spacecraft. This message is a sort of binary.
1: Yeah, you just go, Star Trek the motion picture.
3: Right. Well, I mean,
2: all computers (laughs) up to this moment exist on binary code, that is how it works, unless we have quantum computers which is coming soon, people I, are working I, on that I,
1: I mean, but it really is interesting how many similarities Star Trek The Motion Picture has it's a ton. with the changeling if you want to like hear the other side of this conversation, yeah. you got to listen to our two-part conversation with John Roca on the cinephiles on Star Trek The Motion Picture
3: extremely sophisticated, compressed carrying several channels at
1: once. And one of the other th- interesting things that popped up just
2: because I was curious about it was they say that the data is compressed. There's, there's compression on several channels. And I went, when was data compression invented? And in fact, it was started in the late 1940s. Oh,
3: so that really was
2: a thing. I didn't think that it was that old. Seems to be a single binary. It's
0: mathematical. Yes, one symbol. The symbol repeat.
2: One of the things I really like in this episode, in the first part, is that it really shows Uhura's training because she recognizes all these different signals from all these different eras, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. Absolutely.
0: So that isn't in the Starfleet code, it's it's an old style interplanetary code.
2: And Kirk's like, Well, repeat what? My my message? And they yeah. go, Yeah. And so he repeats his message.
3: They're sending us a mathematical message and requesting language equivalents trying
2: to communicate and they basically let this thing tie into the ship's computer and pull data from it which doesn't seem really very smart to me (laughs) yeah (laughs) like that seems like a weird thing to do to something that just killed four billion people and is about to destroy your ship it's like yeah sure why don't you hack our computer system but that's what they do and in fact takes data so fast that it shorts out the computers and then we hear
1: the voice
0: USS Enterprise, this is Nomad. My mission is non-hostile.
1: We hear the voice of Nomad, which is provided by Vic Perrin, who was also the voice of the Metron mm. in Arena, and we're actually going to see Vic Perrin's face because he plays Tharn at mm. the beginning of Mirror Mirror. Oh,
2: interesting. Interesting. It's interesting to me that the first thing Nomad says is, my mission is non-hostile. Well,
1: you could have fooled us. (laughs) Well,
2: But I think part of what it is is that he doesn't see biological units as anything that matters, so to destroy them is not to be hostile.
1: And it's identifying itself as Nomad. Earlier versions of the outlines and the teleplays, the probe was Mariner, later changed to Altair, Mm. and it was Dorothy Fontana who changed Altair to Nomad.
2: I love Nomad. Nomad's a good name. It's a great name. Uh, And I love, too, that they say, hey, can you come out of your ship because your ship's too small for us to get in. And he says something we hear many, many times.
0: Non sequitur, your facts are uncoordinated.
2: And then Kirk says, which is a bold
1: move.
4: We are prepared to beam you aboard our ship.
1: We just tried to destroy us with these massive bolts. And yeah, sure, come on aboard. But, you know, his reasoning is that comes on a board he won't try to destroy them it won't it it, i keep saying nomad is a he it's it
2: it it is an it that's a good point it does have a male sounding voice Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yes it is definitely an it i think the logic i think that's genius yeah of going it it won't blow us up while it's inside of us Is a really small because they have no defense against this thing this thing can destroy them at will so bring it aboard.
4: Captain, you're not really going to bring that thing in here. Do we have any choice, Scotty?
1: Now, there's a great blooper on mm. that classic blooper reel where Shatner says, uh, we're locked onto your coordinates. We'll beam you aboard. And Jimmy Dewan without his accent, says, Captain, you forgot about the environment and all that stuff. Do you really <laughs> want to do that? <laughs> That's funny. And Shatner just stands there and is like processing like, <laughs> Like he, he wants to laugh, but he's like, is that the lie? <laughs> um,
2: and we head down to the transporter room and we beam aboard Nomad.
1: Nomad is designed by Matt Jeffries and it was built by Jim Rugg. So we talked about how there were three different nomads, one on wires, the other on a dolly, and one which would, would just sit on the floor. So that's why there were three nomads.
2: That's what I, I that's what I, I knew there had to be one to be built on a dolly and one on wires. And now that makes sense that you have
1: one that's just static. Uh, the other the other thing, is, originally, Nomad was supposed to be a huge thing in space, kind of like Voyager in a right. way, and sent a smaller probe to mm. board the Enterprise, again, just like Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm. But it was Gene Roddenberry who suggested making the probe smaller, and that was all there is to Nomad, which I think works out quite nicely and it's probably a lot less expensive well and I think in particular it's two episodes after the Doomsday machine mm, it's like this
2: yeah. is a huge contract I mean that's what the difference is is that they're both you know destroyers of civilization that are heading towards the center of our galaxy you know they're, they're and, and we have to stop them but their look and the, our way of interacting with them are entirely different you know, you know
1: it, it, what's interesting is at this point Kirk has no no idea why nomad stopped this attack and he's just going like like step by step taking baby steps to do whatever it takes to prevent nomad from destroying the enterprise but but what he creates is a situation that snowballs into stakes that are much much higher because of the information that nomad is eventually going to get from the enterprise that will will affect a whole lot more than the Enterprise.
2: And that, though, is the end of Act 1. And we come back to Act 2, and I'm sure this is true for you. Some pieces of music, I I have trouble remembering exactly where we first heard them. This piece of music is Apollo. Like, it'll always be Apollo standing up.
1: Oh, absolutely.
3: Sensor readings, Mr. Spawn. Negative, Captain. It has a protective screen. I cannot get through.
2: At first, they're, like, still thinking that this is a ship with a whole bunch of little people inside. Mm -hmm. And that's how they talk to it. And that is not what's going on at all. And Nomad asks...
0: Relate your point of origin.
2: And first, they tell them United Federation of Planets, and its response is...
0: Insufficient response. All things have a point of origin.
2: And now Kirk makes another choice, which I think is less smart, which is he goes, well, if we just show him, like, the picture of our solar system... He doesn't have a point of reference, so he's not going to know where it is.
1: Well, wait till they find out what part of that actually is. It's going to know completely what it is.
4: If you care to leave your ship, we'll provide the necessary life support systems. Non sequitur. Your facts are uncoordinated. Jim, I don't think anybody's in there.
0: I contain no parasitical beings. I am no man.
4: In my opinion, that's a machine.
2: And this is the first clue of, of kind of thematically of what I think this thing is about, is Nomad asks, because someone said, in my opinion, and Nomad asks,
0: I am Nomad. What is opinion? An opinion is a belief, a view, a judgment.
2: Here's why I think this is important, okay. is that Nomad is all about logic. He's binary. He's ones and zeros. Things are either true or not true. Mm-hmm. Beliefs don't fall into those categories. Beliefs only happen when you are human. A computer doesn't believe that something might be something. A computer either knows or doesn't know. And that is what this whole episode is going to be about, is this idea of, and and that's what's interesting to me, is like, well, what is it that Nomad is trying to do? Yeah. you know, And Mm -hmm. what exactly does it mean? And we hear a really interesting thing, which is they ask, what is your source of power?
0: It has changed since the point of origin. There was much taken from the other...
1: First mention of the other. I am perpetual now.
2: And now we remember, wasn't there a probe called Nomad launched in the early 2000s?
1: And of course, it's Kirk who remembers that there is a probe called Nomad, because as we have established up to this point, Kirk is really, really smart. and He probably read all about Nomad back when he was uh, studying really, really hard at the Academy. Yep.
0: I will scan your star charts.
2: I will bring them. And Nomad says, I have the capability of movement within your ship. Mm-hmm. And it moves, and everyone has a big reaction. And to me, it's like the thing was flying through space. Right. <laughs> the right. fact that it can move doesn't really seem like a, a, a really shocking trick.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, of course, you know, Kirk is probably thinking, like, I'll bring them here so you don't right. see too much of the ship. Right. But then it started to move, and it's like, oh,
2: okay. <laughs> um, and we're in auxiliary control, and Nomad's looking at some star charts. And then Nomad asks the questions that proves Kirk's plan of it not understanding where this was is not working. Right, exactly.
0: You are from the third planet. Yes. A planet with one large natural satellite. Yes. The planet is called Earth.
1: Yes. You are the creator, the Kirk. And... Again, another uh, very interesting uh, parallel to Star Trek, the motion picture, the uh-huh. creator. So just going on when Kirk identified himself as Captain James Kirk, and that was why Nomad stopped, his attacks, stopped its attacks on the Enterprise. So Nomad has come to this epiphany that Kirk is the creator, yep. its creator. And McCoy, I love you know, it's good to have McCoy to ask the
2: question.
0: Well, I'm not the
4: Kirk. Tell me what your function is.
0: This is one of your unit's creator. Yes, he is. It functions irrationally.
2: And this again, this is the key of what this episode is about. Because, and I, and I, am kind of more interested as I think about it. About well, what are we saying about this? Mm-hmm. Because repeatedly, what we're saying is that humans function irrationally. We like, are I, not rational.
1: And I like uh, Kirk's response when he when he says this unit functions irrational. He goes. Now we hear what Nomad's programming
0: is. My function is to probe for biological infestations, to destroy that which is not perfect. I am Nomad.
1: And at that moment, the look on Spock's face, he is startled because that's basically everything.
2: (laughs) Well, again, and it really goes to well, what defines perfection? Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer, of course, is Nomad defines
1: perfection. Or so it thinks.
4: Did you destroy the Malurian system?
0: Not the system, creator Kirk. Only the unstable biological infestation. It is my function.
2: And McCoy, as you would expect, is starting to get mad. Mm-hmm. And we got to settle him down.
1: Nomad, we don't know how Nomad reacts to emotion.
0: Unstable infestation. The population of four planets. What kind of function, doctor?
1: And
2: Kirk's next question
1: is, why do you call me the creator?
0: Is the usage incorrect?
1: Great, great moment. Kirk is like, well, and then Spock interrupts Kirk and says,
3: The usage is correct. Nomad,"
1: And basically saves the day (laughs) with this interruption.
3: The was simply testing your memory banks. And then basically goes, let's go talk outside.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) So they head out uh, to the corridor, leaving Mr. Singh
1: in charge of Nomad. And if Mr. Singh looks familiar, uh, he's played by Blaisdell McKee. You recognize him as Lieutenant Spinelli, the helmsman from
3: Space Seat. I've correlated all the available information on the Nomad Probe, and I'm convinced that this object is indeed that probe. It's ridiculous. Earth science couldn't begin to build anything with those capabilities that long ago.
2: And Kirk also remembers the Nomad Probe from his time at the Academy. Its mission was essentially peaceful. Like, why was it essentially peaceful? (laughs) Do you mean some part of it wasn't peaceful? (laughs) And back in auxiliary control, Mister
1: Singh gets up, kind of close to Nomad, a little, little too close, too close. And there's a light that flashes at the top of Nomad. I never knew what that light meant. Like, if it was irritated at Mister Singh, you know, irritated as a computer can be. I feel like Nomad was like looking down on everybody else.
2: It's like you showed up somewhere. And it's, and it's your dad's house, and your dad's house is filled with rats. Yeah, and You're like, why are you living with all these rats? Oh, like, wow. You know, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, what, sure. what? Why do you have all these? You made me. Like, why would you hang out with them? <laughs> Bridge
3: to auxiliary control room. Check in,
4: please. Oh, one moment, Lieutenant.
2: And then basically has to do something else, and he leaves the channel open, and Uhura starts singing.
1: And she starts singing Beyond the Antares, which is the song that she sang in the conscience of the king and nomad perks up Where you? you know his little antenna goes up he's like what's that uh, I keep saying he it's it it says like what's that and it leaves auxiliary control to go to the bridge on its own and we're in the briefing room and we see a picture of Jackson Roykirk
3: this is the creator of Nomad Perhaps the most brilliant, though erratic, scientist of his time.
1: And Jackson Roy Kirk, that photo is actually of director Mark Daniels. Oh,
3: that's
1: and, awesome. Isn't that cool? That's and awesome. And Mark Daniels is wearing the dress uniform that Scotty wore from Spacey.
2: Oh, Okay again I love any time that they figure out how to be cheap makes me happy because <laughs> because those people if you're not a filmmaker maybe you don't understand but everyone who's tried to make a film knows that every penny you can save you want to and so so those are those are great great filmmaking choices Captain I
3: believe that nomad thinks you
2: are Roy Kirk so this is why the attack was called off this is what is keeping them safe at this moment
1: yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they look at an image of Nomad, the original design. The original design is also designed by Matt Jeffries, and uh, but we do find out that the original plan was for Nomad to seek out new life forms, mm-hmm.
2: and somehow that programming was changed, and the programming has become from seeking out new life forms to seeking out perfect life forms. And I like this line.
3: Perfection being measured by its own relentless logic.
2: Great line. Which, by the way, I mean, that's what we all do. We have our own standards of what we think is right and wrong and good and bad and all these things. And then we look at other people and and they fail or succeed based on our standards. And our standards are not actually logical, you know, even if we think they are.
4: What you say is true. And we've taken aboard our vessel, a device which sooner or later... Must destroy
1: it. Wow. Yeah, it's only a matter of time before it does. That, like, now it becomes a race against time. Right. The stakes just like jumped big time.
2: Well, and this is what's different about the Doomsday Machine. Even though the setup in some ways is the same, the Doomsday Machine was an action story. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we're in battle. This is a psychological story. It's an intellectual story. Correct. We are, we have a puzzle that we now have to solve.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So Kurt goes, "Let's get some security to auxiliary control," except. Nomad's not there anymore, and I go, Mister Singh. Why didn't you weren't really pay? You should have paid attention to this thing. <laughs> like, come on, dude.
1: Yeah, yeah. Turn tu- this is what you get for turning your back on Nomad. I mean, the thing almost destroyed the Enterprise, and mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, whatever. Mm-hmm. I go back to my work. But the, the what's interesting, some of the earlier versions of the story. So what happens at this moment is that Nomad figures out how to go to go to the bridge. It right. finds its own way to the bridge. In some of the earlier versions of the of the teleplays, because the, the the layout of the story was so fundamentally different, that it is actually Captain Kirk who shows Nomad to the bridge. He like gives Nomad a tour of sorts, uh, but this much much better because Nomad finds the bridge on its own.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and, and it's just faster, you know. Sure. And Nomad comes onto the bridge. Scotty sees Nomad floating through the bridge. Uhura is still singing. I wish she had another song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've yeah. heard this a bit. Reach to Captain. Captain, That mechanical
4: beastie is up here. I'll always got it.
2: So Kirk is heading up. Sulu moves out of the way as Nomad goes by, and it goes up to Uhura, who stops singing.
0: What is the meaning?
1: This is a great moment for Nichelle.
0: Singing. I was singing. For what purpose is singing? I don't know.
3: I, I like to sing. I felt like music.
0: This
2: is all, again, we talked about belief. That was our first one, a very human, non-logical thing. And now I felt like music, a thing that has no purpose in terms of logic, but emotionally has a really important purpose. Mm-hmm. And I, I I, just, it's so funny because it's what came up at the very beginning when we first started is we started talking about the split between logic and emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about how the success meant being able to conquer your emotions with logic because that's what you know. Kirk has to do with the enemy within. That's what ha- they, Kirk and Spock have to do in the Naked Time. They have to overcome emotions. We talked about it in a whole bunch of different examples, this idea of overcoming emotions with logic. This, again, Star Trek looks at something in a different way. This is... Well, wait, what's the importance of emotion? Why is that important? And in a weird way, it relates for me to the Galileo 7 mm-hmm. because that's Spock totally applying logic down the line, and right? it fails. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is Nomad going, The only, I'm looking for perfection. Only
1: perfection should stay. But I don't understand singing. And Nomad sort of projects this beam onto Uhura, and the look on her face... Is already alarming that it's hurting her. Think
2: about music. And Scotty immediately, you know what? Scotty does not like it when women are getting attacked.
1: Right. Scotty thinks before
2: he acts. He has a real heroic, you know, knight in shining armor gear.
1: Or or actually I should say Scotty acts before he thinks.
2: Yes. And he runs towards nomad. Keep away from my Scotty! And again, just like with Apollo, it is a crazy stunt
1: flying back over that railing. No! <laughs> the stunt man doing that stunt, just like the crazy stunt in Who Out or Nice, is performer Jay Jones.
3: Same, oh, it's the pers- same guy,
1: same guy. Yeah, wow. because that when when Nomad shoots Scotty and he goes flying uh, yeah. o- over the rail, yeah. uh, you know that 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 stunt man really—it's a good stunt. It's a great stunt. Yeah, but in the original version, Scotty was zapped to death after touching Nomad out of curiosity. But mm. this is obviously much more, Way dramatic. more dramatic.
2: And that's just as the moment of Kirk and McCoy and Spock enter the bridge. McCoy runs to Scotty and says, "He's dead, John and we're back in in act three and Kirk is mad like really mad I mean obviously I mean it's it's fun one of the weird things about Star Trek is sometimes people die like four billion people and we don't have much of an emotional reaction Scotty dying does
4: why did you kill him the unit touched my screens that unit was my chief engineer.
2: And then they call over to Uhura. And I think Nichelle Nichols does a great job of being just completely blank. Yep, oh yeah. In this moment. Um, And they send her
1: off to sick bay.
0: What'd you do to her? That unit is defective. Its thinking is chaotic. Absorbing it unsettled me.
1: And Spock says that unit is a woman. And, And turns out that Nomad is just as sexist as Spock has been a couple of times. A
0: mass of conflicting impulses.
1: What's funny about it, to me, it is a
2: classic sort of 50s, 60s joke, you know? Um, and And it is. It's totally like some of the ones that Spock said earlier on in the show. And what I don't like about it is... It's it's highlighting as if Ahura is different from everybody else. When that's what Nomad's saying about everybody. Yeah, you yeah. know, she, she, it's not that Ahura is erratic. It's we're all erratic.
0: Will the creator effect repairs on the unit, Scott? And they're
2: like,
1: "What? He's dead."
0: Does the creator wish me to repair the unit?
1: And the look on Kirk's face—he looks at McCoy like, "What have we got to lose?" Yeah.
2: And so now, and now though they give. Nomad a whole bunch of more, you know, this is how human beings work. And they even have some, like, brain scans of Scotty that they're going to use. And now that Nomad has learned about humans, Nomad is not impressed.
0: The unit, Scott, is a primitive structure. Insufficient safeguards built in. Breakdown can occur from many causes. Self-maintenance systems of low
4: reliability. It serves me as it is, Nomad. Repair it.
2: And this is the first time we get that shot that they had to build that Nomad for. with nom- So Nomad's on the dolly.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah,
2: in front of the camera so that everywhere the dolly goes, we see Nomad in front. And it works really well. I like the shot. We're in sick Bay. Nurse Chapel is there. Scotty's on the bed. He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> the monitors, nothing's happening. And here comes Nomad and suddenly the heartbeat starts and Scotty
1: sits right up.
4: What does it look? Are you staring at me for?
1: Nomad has resurrected Scotty, so this is the second time that a major character has died and been brought back to life after McCoy mm. in Shore Leave. And you could argue, well, didn't Kirk also die in a mock time? Mm. Ish. Ish, yeah. He appeared yeah, to he die. Was, I would say that that uh, simulating death, that neural paralyzer didn't kill him. It simulated death, so he wasn't actually dead. Yes. So there you go.
2: One are the interesting things that again it goes to like not having really thinking about continuity? But man, we could have learned a lot
1: from Nomad. <laughs> we could have, yeah. if, uh, if Nomad hadn't uh, been so aggressive with its attacks.
2: Um, and I like that Scotty's sort of right back in. He's still right in the moment where he died.
4: That thing did something to Lieutenant. Scotty, she's and, being taken care it's, of. It's all right.
2: They settle Scotty down.
0: The unit Scott is repaired. It will function correctly if your information to me was correct. I'd like to check it out if you don't
4: mind. A man is not just a biological unit that you can patch together.
2: Again, I really think this is on theme. A computer, if I unplug it and plug it back in, it's the same computer. That's not true with humans. Mm-hmm. You know, who? what are we is more than just a bunch of circuits. Well, and it goes to, on a weird level, like, do we have a soul? Nomad, come here. She looks over at Ahura, who's just staring blankly. And Kirk says,
4: Repair that unit.
2: Not possible. And for Kirk, it's like, Well, Scotty was dead. She's still alive. This should be easier, right? Uh, and Nomad's reply is,
0: The unit Scott required simple structural repair. The knowledge banks of this unit have been wiped clean.
1: Now, originally, a crew member named Yeoman Barbara Wilson had her brain drained after she was whistling. So it wasn't mm. like Uhura after singing, but it was Gene Roddenberry who suggested that Nurse Chapel suffer the mm. brain drain. Mm. But then Gene Kuhn and Fa- Dorothy Fontana said, we should we should make it Uhura.
3: If that is correct, if there has been no brain damage, but only knowledge erased, she could be re-educated. Yes, I'll get on it right away.
2: And then he turns back towards Nomad and says...
3: And in spite of the way you repaired, Scotty, you metal ticking. Does the creator wish Nomad to wait elsewhere?
1: By the way, Spock interrupting McCoy after McCoy keeps going after Nomad might have saved McCoy's life. 100% agree. Because McCoy is acting so irrationally, yeah. you know, emotionally, and illogically, uh, eventually, Nomad is going to say this is the prime example of, of sterilization. You know, absolutely, and it could have killed him. I, I hundred
2: percent think Spock should, saved his life in that moment. I also don't believe McCoy. I think this is too. I, I, I know McCoy's irascible, and I know McCoy has emotional outbursts. Mm. But they're literally this. They're standing next to this thing that could kill them at any second. I don't believe that McCoy would do this. <laughs> it seems just too, too far.
4: Nomad, you will go with these units. They will take you to a waiting area. Oh.
2: Uh. This poor wretch hurts. And then with Nomad still in the room, he says...
4: Take it to the top
2: security cell on the break. And it's like, Nomad can hear you. Mm-hmm. You
1: know? <laughs> He's, I'm standing right He's here. He's standing right here.
2: <laughs> and then Spock tells McCoy, basically, dude, I saved your life.
3: I interrupted you because Nomad would not have understood your anger. It has great technical skill, but its reaction to emotion is unpredictable. It almost qualifies as a life form. <laughs> That's a laugh.
2: Which... It's funny because again I go to like Metamorphosis, we had a really broad view of what constituted a life form.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um
2: and here a really narrow one. And I I think this I think there are definitely reasons to say that nomad is a life form.
1: Uh, it's it's thinking on its own. It's artificial yeah. intelligence. Yeah. But it is it you know, who's to say how much the other was actually a right. life form? Maybe maybe the other was a little more organic than than nomad was organic. But I, I think that Nomad absolutely qualifies as a life form, the way it is behaving. Right.
2: And and I think there's going to be even more evidence that it's a life form coming up. Mm-hmm. And now we have this moment that we've had many, many times on the show. Spock says... The
3: study of it would be of great use, Captain.
4: It's a killer, Spock. I intend to render it harmless.
2: We heard this in Devil in the Dark. We've heard this over and over again, this idea and this moment between Kirk and Spock. And again, what's interesting, in this case, we are going to kill it. Like. Yeah.
1: We in, have to. In, yes.
2: In Devil in the Dark, we found a way to not kill it.
1: Well, Devil in the Dark and, and also Metamorphosis, because the, the motives yeah. are changed in a similar way between wanting to kill it, realizing what it was, and realizing actually, no, we were wrong. In this case, they're, they're not wrong. They're, they're right on wrong. point. No, they know yeah. exactly what Nomad is going to do. Because they've been communicating with it all along. They know exactly. It's yeah. through communication that they realized they were wrong in Devil in the exactly. Dark Exactly. Exactly. Here, the communication reaffirmed what they knew from the first bolt yeah. that this thing needs to be destroyed.
2: And he sends Spock off to study it. And we go later on, and Spock is sitting with Nomad, and he hasn't gotten anywhere. What's the problem?
3: An almost human stubbornness, Captain. I have been unable to convince Nomad to lower his screens for analysis. Without his cooperation, I can do nothing.
2: He tells Nomad to lower his screen so Spock can probe the memory banks, and Nomad says,
3: "This
0: unit is different. It is well ordered."
2: And Spock is like proud. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I, it's a great it's a great beat. We've had it sort of before in Star Trek, and then we go to Sickbay, where Uhura is basically doing you know C spot
1: run books to try to learn how to read. Now, many people, uh, myself included, have noted that. For Uhura's mind, brain to be white, and to be re-educated, and to be back at her station by the next episode is a big, big, big stretch. I I
2: think this is a huge weakness of the show. Yeah, and I think, and I also think there was a really interesting science fiction thing to explore here. Like, well, what. What part of her personality was her memories, and how many of her memories does she have? Absolutely. And, and what? You know, who is Uhura? And does she change or learn things differently? And like, there's so many. This is where having a continuing series, right, that would have been really interesting.
1: Yeah, if it was ever serialized, know? that that this moment would have affected her and changed her completely from the... It Almost like she would have been a completely different character in some yeah. ways.
2: But McCoy going like, well, we got the tape. We have all the educational tapes.
1: This will be no problem. Yeah. It's yeah. really dumb. You know, so much of, of it comes down to, uh, you know, just going with it and uh, uh, suspending your disbelief. But this is one that really is a stretch for that suspension of disbelief. And actually, while they were making this episode, while Uhur was being educated... That, that when Chapo and Uhura are having a conversation and Uhura was speaking mostly, you know, she was speaking in English, but it was actually Nichelle Nichols at her insistence that when she wasn't speaking in the English, that she was speaking in her native Swahili. Mm.
3: Mm, not, not Swahili, Uhura. In English.
1: Which was her first language. So while she had regressed... That that should be her go-to language was Swahili. So that was all in the Shell Nichols.
2: Well, and that to me is the most interesting thing that happens in the scenes. So I'm really glad she came up with that. It also, thinking as a writer, I go like, well, wait, why? Did she retain Swahili? Mm-hmm. And you could explore, like, well, oh, some parts of her brain were more erased than others, or early memories were held on to stronger and they came back first. There are all sorts of things you could talk about. Absolutely. That 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 brings up. I but that being said, I think Michelle Nichols and Major Barrett are really good in the scene. Yeah,
1: it's a really good scene. It's a yeah.
2: sweet scene. And now we're back to nomad. And Spock has basically got all the info he can get.
3: Got to know about it, Spock. What makes it operate? It's compulsion for perfection. Captain, I suggest the Vulcan mind probe.
1: Vulcan mind probe between Spock and Nomad. This scene is so good because of where that mind meld goes. It becomes a little disturbing, a little unnerving that Nomad soon will turn the tables on Spock during this process.
2: Well, and this is, you remember earlier I said there's more evidence that Nomad is a life form? I think this is the evidence. This like, is it. You're right. Because this is, I mean, Spock doesn't mind meld with the ship's computer. And, and it goes to the, does Nomad have a soul? What is what is a mind meld? You know, like all these things
1: I start thinking about. And, and, and to your point, uh, most of that life form comes from the other. Right. Right. Right, that's a great, great point. Well, I remember
2: when we did talk about motion picture on cinephiles, that you brought up. I think the fan theory that where Viger had gone to the machine planet was in fact to the Borg.
1: Oh yeah, that that was my theory. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> um, and
2: and you know, I don't know
1: where the other came from, but maybe it was the same place. Per- perhaps it was. That's actually a really interesting theory. Uh, that that even back in you know the twenty third century, that there were. There were connections with the Borg that we did not fully fully realize until Q took us there in second season. So Spock goes to the mind meld. I
3: am nomad. I am performing my function.
1: I think Nimoy's performance here is so great. And look, when Spock mind melded with Van Gelder in dagger of the mind when spock melded with the horda in devil in the dark and now melding with nomad in the changeling I, nimoy brings so much to his performance as spock that goes beyond whatever must have been written he just really really brings something so unique to spock that that no one else could have done
2: you know i remember you saying when we did doomsday machine that william wyndham kind of Made fun of how seriously everyone took things on Star Trek. Yeah. But that's the key is that, you know, between this and the Horda, Nimoy had to like go up to some really weird looking prop. Sure. And do a real performance. And he does it. He puts 100% into it, because I'm telling you, on the set, it looked really, really silly. And the interesting moment to me is we hear there was a collision, we hear there's damage, blackness, and then we hear this other voice. I
3: am the other. I am Tan ru, Tan
1: ru. Spock's inflection becomes very different. Flat- Mm-hmm. Uh, almost. It's such a short scene, but you hear just a couple words here and there that establish everything you need to know about what happened with the original Nomad, and what happened with Tanru and how they melded. I will say, you know, when I was re-watching The Changeling, I was thinking about okay, yeah, of course, tons of similarities to Viger and Star Trek the motion picture, but I also see Nomad as a mechanical Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, what? what I feel like they sort of had a missed opportunity in some ways. Like, Nomad, as we see it throughout this episode, Nomad Mm. looks really clean. Mm. I thought that Nomad should have looked like it was slapped together. Like, you should have seen scars on Nomad, like you see scars on Frankenstein.
2: I think that would have been really
1: interesting. I love that idea. It would have like like really looked first of all really would have looked alien and it would have also looked scary. It would have looked scary that this thing looks like it was patched from from two completely different different civilizations and it would have uh, added to the menace. Yeah,
2: I think that's a really interesting idea. It's also, you know, what it is too. It's a more later science fiction design aesthetic. Mm. You know, once you get to Star Wars and Alien, where science fiction worlds were lived in worlds, you would right. see more imperfections and things like that. I think that was a perfect idea for Nomad. Sure,
1: because then he would look like what he is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I just think, like, like under the circumstance of it, that it repaired itself in space. It just, yeah. it's too, it's too uh, shiny polished and shiny.
2: One little uh, move that I like is that as it's getting more intense Spock moves around Nomad uh-huh. and the camera pushes in on his face and it just adds a little more intensity and now we see something which I think we see in some ways more than we've ever seen before which is that as much as Spock is reaching into Nomad Nomad is affecting Spock. Yeah. And as we hear the story of them coming together and, and the power we also hear the programming which is
3: our purpose Is clear. Sterilize. Imperfections.
2: And Spock is trying to move away. Mm -hmm. And Spock says, sterilize. Sterilize. Sterilize.
3: Nomad. Sterilize. Nomad. Sterilize.
1: And Spock is stuck. And so Spock has detached himself from Nomad. Physically. 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 But Nomad is now controlling him. And I think that's a really great point that you brought up about how... This is, like, probably the best example of what makes Nomad a life form.
4: Nomad, You're in contact sterilized. with the unit Spock! Nomad,
3: Stop. Stop!
1: Stop!
3: Acknowledge.
1: Kirk takes Spock out of the, the corridor so Spock can come to his bearings again. You know, we've been talking
2: about, you know, that although you and I adore Captain Kirk, that in a lot of ways Spock is the central figure of, of Star Trek, or the most important. And his journey... That culminates, you know, much with this very, very wise man, much, much later in the movies and even next generation. And one of the things that we talked about was I think Spock says that Van Gelder is the first time that Vulcan is mind melded with a human. And one of the things that came up is we went, Oh, is it possible that Spock's understanding of his emotional side, which he's gonna fully reconcile in Star Trek the motion picture, begins with mind melding with Van Gelder. Because he suddenly is getting a, a sense of the human side.
1: Sure, yeah. You know, mm-hmm.
2: And, well, now it's the opposite. Now he's mind-melding with something that is purely, coldly logical and exceptionally dangerous.
1: And it's overpowering to Spock. Yeah, and so
2: maybe, again, in this journey of the balance between logic and emotion, human and Vulcan, we have moments like Van Gelder and the Galileo 7, and the palm far in Amok Time is that he's getting all of these, this is what emotion is. This is what logic is. This is the danger of emotion. Yep, for this sure. This is the danger of logic, you know? And that, and that it's, that's what's going to lead him in this long, long journey to wisdom eventually. And so we're out in the
1: corridor. And again, Spock is still Spock. The first thing he says. It's fascinating.
3: Fascinating, Captain. The knowledge.
1: The depth. <laughs> What's amazing? Again, this is just great delivery from Nimoy. A great choice made by Nimoy to react and like like he's almost like giddy after his contact with Nomad. Uh, uh, he's uh, uh, excited in some ways about the reaction Nomad had on Spock, uh, and he's also like got a lot of information out of it. Now, what's interesting is that in earlier versions of the changeling. Nomad did not merge with another. Mm. It was damaged in space, and it repaired itself after, you know, and it began seeking out perfect life. But it was Gene Roddenberry. I mean, you know, like we talk about how Gene Kuhn became the showrunner for season two, and Bob Justman, especially Dorothy Fontana, were so integral to so many of the creative decisions And Roddenberry's involvement was nowhere near where it was in the first half of the first season. But he's still obviously very, very involved, coming up with great ideas like the one to have Nomad merge with another alien craft called The Other.
2: Gene throwing in ideas, Dorothy Fontana throwing in ideas, all of this group uh, working together to make Star Trek. Have I ever told you, I don't know, do you know what the name of my company is?
1: No, what is the name
2: of your company? Team Effort Films. And the reason it's team effort films is because what I learned in film school is no individual who makes a movie. A movie is making a movie is a team sport,
1: collaborative.
2: And if there's one thing I've tried throughout the entire history of the cinephiles to destroy is the image of the genius director who has the whole movie in their head and it all comes from them. Sure. That mm-hmm. is never true. It doesn't work that way. No human being can come up with all the ideas necessary to make a film or a TV show.
1: Of course this is a team. It is has a, to be. It's a team. It is a collaboration. No yep. question. I mean, Star Trek, uh, especially as Star Trek found itself, as I like to say, it hit its stride. It improved. The characters became more defined. They found the rhythm. That came about because of collaboration, not just with Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, and Dorothy Fontana, and uh, Bob Justman, but also uh, the regular rotation of directors they used, in this case, Mark Daniels, of course, Joseph Pevney, yeah. and of course, Raph Yeah.
2: And all of them had a, just Uhura saying, Hey, I should speak Swahili. Yep. You know, exactly. it's team mm-hmm. effort. So the other interesting thing that occurred to me is we what we hear is that the original nomad, you know, was damaged in space and it had its memory banks destroyed. Mm-hmm. Do you know who else's memory banks were destroyed? Whose? Uhura's. Oh. What's yeah. interesting to oh, me yeah. is we have a story of the re education or reprogramming of nomad that is disastrous while simultaneously someone's being re educated. And this show makes no and makes no connection of them, obviously. But I but that's where I go like, oh, in a lot of ways the horror stuff is more interesting in terms of science fiction to me than some of the nomad stuff.
1: There, you're right. There really could have been an opportunity there to for especially for Nichelle to I mean she was looking for if she was thinking about leaving yeah. and then, you know, of course she had the run in with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who mm-hmm. inspired her to stay, but if she was still not crazy about 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 her role that she didn't have enough to do having her mind erased and 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 being reeducated and like you said how much of her personality and her identity came from her from her memory then then this would have been just such a great chance for her to play someone who was a little different okay. and yeah. and if
2: this had been star trek in the 90s or in the 21st century, they would have done they that. Would have they would have absolutely done would have totally that, done that. For but sure. That's, but this is the story of, of Kirk and Spock and McCoy going on each adventure every week, and it, that's not the kind of show this is.
1: For sure, completely. Yeah. And at this moment, Kirk has an epiphany. He says, changeling.
3: Changeling. I beg your pardon.
1: Which is, of course, the title of the episode. And according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, changeling means, quote, a child secretly changed for another in infancy. But in European folklore, changeling is the offspring of a fairy, a troll, or an elf secretly left in the place of a kidnapped human child. And this is integral to where the story goes. Changelings could be identified by their malicious temper and other unpleasant traits. Interesting.
2: This is also an example of we're using the title of the ep- Not only are we are using the title of the episode in the episode, but we're explaining the title of the episode uh, in yeah. the episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, when they talk about... When Kirk says, do you ever hear of the Doomsday, oh, doomsday Machine? The sure. Doomsday Machine, I have no problem with that, because that is exp- trying to... there. It is in the thing trying to figure out the thing. This is just... Uh, by the way, this is what the title of the episode <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we find out the rest of the story, which is it collided with some other much more powerful machine and basically it merged the two uh, bits of programming. It was designed to seek out new life, and this thing was designed to sterilize soil samples from other planets.
1: So so put it together and uh, you have this new mission to sterilize imperfect life forms.
2: Yeah, which is you know, probably not really how programming works, but it's okay. <laughs> um, and then there's this moment, I don't, I, I don't love this. Well,
3: it's... Space happy. It thinks I'm its mother. And that is the only thing that has saved us until now. We're
2: up in the brig. That force field is not going to keep Nomad in. Nothing will keep Nomad in. It comes out. Our security guys draw their phasers, shoot at him. That's no good. Photon torpedoes didn't work on this thing. Yeah, what two you little
1: dicky little phasers
2: going to do? And goodbye to those red guys. They're gone. They're gone.
1: I, and I got to say. The first episode, I think, to sort of establish that running joke about the Red Shirts. Yeah. This is one.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we're down in engineering, and here comes Nomad.
0: This primitive matter-antimatter propulsion system is the main drive. Uh-huh. Inefficiency exists in the antimatter input valve. I will effect repair. And we see
2: all sorts of lights moving, and we hear the en- engines kind of revving up. And Scotty's going
1: How are you doing that? And then we're at warp eight And we're going mighty fast and getting faster
4: Warp nine Cut your circuits, all of them Warp ten, Mr. Scott Impossible, it can't go that fast And in comes Kirk Oh man, stop what you're doing Is there a problem, creator? You will destroy my ship Its structure cannot stand the stress of that much power Turn off your repair operation. Acknowledged.
2: This is also where I went kind of like, I know this thing's going to kill us. But in the meantime, Nomad, would you explain to Scotty what you did <laughs> so he could write it down? This would be very useful information.
1: Well, what I noticed here, and I never noticed this before. So Kirk walks in and, and you see Kirk kind of like wave Scotty away. Mm, yeah. I never noticed that yeah, before. Yeah.
2: And this is also when Kirk finds out about the two security guards that have been killed. And he's angry, and Nomad says, Your biological units are inefficient. And in that angry moment,
1: Kirk says,
4: Nomad, it's about time I told you who and what you are. I'm a biological unit, and I created you.
1: Uh, that was a burst of emotion yeah. that uh, Spock did not approve. Yeah.
4: <laughs> non sequitur, biological units are
0: inherently inferior. This is an inconsistency.
1: It is just occurring to me during this conversation, It is something that I don't know why it didn't hit me after all these decades of watching this episode. Like, and you just—I think maybe it's because of what you just said about Mm. the 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 commitment. You know, talking about how William Wyndham made the comment, "God, these—they they they, they took the stuff so seriously." But that's why the show was so great because they did take it so seriously. Like when you look at William Shatner's performance, especially Shatner's performance in this episode, Mm -hmm. that he is committing to a prop. Right He is so committed to that prop he gives that prop life. Mm-hmm. very similar to the way that Mark Hamill's commitment mm. to a puppet yep in in the Empire Strikes Back yeah. gave Yoda life. Mark Hamill's commitment to his performance and his immersion and his commitment to what he was acting with gave that 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 lifeless prop. Mm-hmm. A, a, a gave that lifeless prop life itself, right? And the I think part of the personality of Nomad comes out of Shatner's Absolutely. commitment to his yeah. performance and his immersion to this prop of Nomad.
2: Well, and and Shatner didn't even have Frank Oz, you know, uh, who's right. giving that prop some life. Well, you know, and you know, it just occurred to me based on what you just said. In a lot of ways, this is the future of acting is so much of the biggest movies made today are people acting with blue screens, people acting with people dressed in blue suits with sure. weird balls on them. Yep. People, you know, like there's all there is so much where we have actors who have to be 100% serious in in things that look totally ridiculous.
1: And and Vic Perrin who provided the voice of Nomad, he was actually on, oh, set. Was on set. Oh, he was on set. He was on set because obviously as you notice whenever Nomad talks, the lights blink. Mm. So the, his lights blink in in unison with his with his oh, dialogue. No. So that is why Vic Perrin had to be on set. That's interesting. interesting That's and right? really
2: smart. It's always better. It's because otherwise you have the script supervisor reading off camera lines, and that doesn't that that can be kind of rough.
1: But but I never I never occur to me like like Chatner is just so good that it just didn't occur to me. He's just doing. Right. He's he's playing a character.
2: Well, you're, what you said is absolutely right. He and and uh, Nimoy make this metal thing seem alive. Absolutely. And then Kirk sends Nomad off with another two guards. One thing, by the way, I would have said to the guards, "Hey, security guards, no phasers. Put your phasers down. Just get rid of them
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: because there's no they, they won't work on this thing. And that's what it's how it's going to save your life. And the scary moment is Kirk. Give says him very
4: strongly, I have given you new programming and you will implement.
2: And Nomad does not say acknowledge. Nomad says,
4: There is much
0: to be considered before I return to launch point. I must reevaluate.
2: There are multiple scary things about that. You know, one is I'm not taking the command. Two, I'm going to reevaluate, and then Spock brings up what the third one is.
3: Captain, it may have been unwise to admit to Nomad that you are a biological unit. In Nomad's eyes, you must now undoubtedly appear imperfect. And Kirk immediately acknowledges it.
4: It was a foolish mistake.
1: I love that. Good leaders can admit when they're wrong. Absolutely. And that's uh, Kirk has admitted when he was wrong many times. Mm-hmm.
3: Even worse, Nomad just now made a reference to its launch point, Earth.
1: And when it gets there, it will carry out its. It's mission, sterilize. Yeah.
2: yeah, that's scary. And that is the end of Act Three. It's Act Four, and it reminded me a little bit of Charlie X. In the log, Kirk says the presence of Nomad has become nightmarish.
1: Well, here's why it's so appropriate that you see that, Steve Morris, because it was Gene Roddenberry's idea to have Nomad turn the Enterprise into a "quote unquote" hell ship, mm-hmm. just like he, the Roddenberry, had suggested. Charlie Evans wow. do in Charlie X. So you were right on point with your oh, observation, my friend. That's
2: very cool. And we see Nomad again. It's that POV kind of shot where he's on the dolly, and they're going, "Hey, Nomad!" Our security guys are going, "Hey, Nomad! Let's go this way." Nomad doesn't listen. They open fire. Bye bye. Two more red shirts.
1: Okay, so so basically, you have four red shirts die in this episode. Yes. Okay, I think it was Obsession. Obsession. I think also had four red shirts die. So, so I think, to correct me if I'm wrong, Enterprise Incidents fans, but I think four is the record. At, oh, and also I think four redshirts died in the Apple. Mm. Okay. So I think those three episodes, the Changeling, the, uh, the Apple, and uh, uh, what was the other one? Uh, obsession. Obsession. Okay, so those three episodes tie with, with four redshirts dying apiece. But technically speaking... You had five redshirts die in Changeling. One of them just got just resurrected. Just Good right? point. Good so, point. So I, I'm just going to say that the Changeling holds the record of having the most redshirts die, regardless of the fact that one of those redshirts, Scotty, was resurrect- resurrected by Nomad.
2: I'm totally good with that. Uh, we hear there's emergency. We run to sick bay to find uh, Chapel being kind of helped up off the floor. And what we hear is that Nomad was searching the medical records. Whose medical records? Yours.
4: And found that its creator is as imperfect as all the other biological units.
2: And the next thing that happens right at that moment, life support's been cut off.
4: Jim, with all the systems out, we'll only have enough air and heat for... Scotty. Some anti-grabs and meet me in engineering.
1: Kirk has a plan.
2: I think he has the beginnings of a plan. I don't think he's... You know what I mean? Like, I think it hasn't fully coalesced in his brain. We go into engineering. There's a bunch of passed out people.
1: Now, let me ask you a question. So... Kirk passes by. There's a there's an engineering yeah. officer at his station, and he's he's unconscious. And Kirk goes over, checks his pulse, mm-hmm. and has a look on his face. So is that engineering officer dead? I don't think so. And 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 here's
2: where and I think a a that would be more red shirts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely <laughs> up your number. But I don't feel like Kirk's response to them is that they're dead. I also this is where Nomad's not consistent. If Nomad's plan is to kill everybody, why didn't it kill Nurse Chapel? Why isn't it just going through the hallways shooting people? We know it can do that, uh, you know. And what? And why did it? Why are these people unconscious or dead but have bodies rather than just disappearing?
1: Well, well, I think he's just unconscious because I think so too. because when it killed the uh, the security people, it made them disappear. But when it killed Scotty, it just knocked him over the thing. See, that's a good point. Why yeah. did it make Scott? Thankfully, it the dot, makes Scott right. disappear.
2: Well, and, and this is where it's just that's how they wrote it. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> like, that's just, like that's what it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. You he, just
1: saved us about two hours of uh, yeah. <laughs> a digression. <laughs>
2: but then there'd be no like we got on the show and just went, "Hey, everybody, this is how they wrote it. See you later. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going boldly." <laughs> um, uh, uh, Any orders, Nomad, to restore life support. Nope, that's not going to work. You're
4: programmed to obey the orders of your creator.
0: I am programmed to destroy those life forms which are imperfect. And, and what Nomad is
2: doing is he's going to kill all the biological infestations in the ship, but keep the ship. I don't know what Nomad needs the Enterprise for. Well,
1: uh, the Enterprise, maybe, maybe, okay. Does, does Nomad it's think a it's a life form? Maybe Nomad wants to help it achieve consciousness. consciousness. Interesting. Interesting. You.
4: I am perfect. I am Nomad. No, you're not Nomad. You're an alien machine. Your programming tapes have been altered. You
0: are in error. You are a biological unit. You are imperfect.
2: Again, Nomad is holding on to what it thinks reality is. Now what Kirk does, and this is where I really think he comes up with a plan. Yep. He establishes logical points, gets Nomad to agree to the logical points, and then destroys them.
1: Well, this is absolutely, I think you're right. I think Mm -hmm. when Kirk said, hey, get uh, Scotty, meet me in engineering with the anti-grabs, he definitely didn't have his plan formulated. He's thinking as he goes along right now, like it's really hitting him.
4: I created you. You are the creator. But I admit I'm imperfect. How could I have created such a perfect thing as you? Answer unknown. I shall analyze.
2: What's so interesting is watching Nomad Can't Let Go Of its own version of itself. The term in psychology is cognitive dissonance. Is that, and we all do this all the time, is that we cannot see our own imperfections and we blind ourselves to them. Like someone cuts you off on the freeway and you go, God, that guy's a terrible driver. Then you cut some off on the freeway and you go, eh. You know, sure. we do this all the time. We do it as a country. We do it as individuals. And Nomad is doing it right now. I will not accept information that shakes up my worldview.
0: I am Nomad. I am perfect. That which is imperfect must be sterilized. You must sterilize in case of error. Error is inconsistent with my prime function. Sterilization is correction.
2: You know what he's doing? He's like a a prosecuting attorney leading the witness into a, into a contradiction.
1: And as we established in Wolf in the Fold, yeah. Shatner is really good yep. at that kind of a performance mm-hmm. because of the, the many different uh, attorneys that he has played over the course of his incredible career. It's
2: <laughs> true. First he establishes way to make him imperfect, and then he establishes, what is your programming?
4: Everything that is in error must be sterilized. There are no exceptions.
1: And that's it. Gotcha. Wait a
0: minute.
4: Hang
1: on. I'm your creator? Yes, you're the creator. I created you? You are the creator. You're wrong. I love how once Kirk goes on the attack, he is relentless.
4: Jackson Roy Kirk, your creator, is dead. You have mistaken me for him. You are in error. You did not discover your mistake. You have made two errors. You are flawed and imperfect. And you have not corrected by sterilization. You have made three errors.
1: I got to say. That of all of the different ways that Kirk has used logic to talk a computer into destroying itself this is the best like when you look at okay i mean uh, a what a little girl's made of is kind of a kind of a you know he he talked uh, corby into killing himself yes. but definitely return of the Archons with Landrew, right. definitely the m5 in yeah. the ultimate computer this is the best of the moments the best of all those great classic moments where Kirk talks a computer into killing itself.
2: I 100% agree, but but, <laughs> but there, there is an incredibly divisive episode of Star Trek that I like that many people don't like that has a very enjoyable one, which is mud.
1: Uh, oh, ooh, we're gonna have a very interesting conversation yeah. about IMUD. IMUD is a.
2: I, I'm. I it is. I think it's one that has the biggest split of <laughs> people who genuinely like it and people who don't.
1: Okay, but yeah, you're right. He does use logic There's, to, uh, there, yeah. and
2: it's a. Well, and they're doing it to multiple people, and also, and it's completely silly. Yeah, it so is. So if you enjoy, <laughs> if you can enjoy silly. the silliness, <laughs> then it's good. If you don't enjoy silliness, then it's terrible. <laughs> um, and man, once he hits him with this logic nomad loses it
4: error error error. examine you are flawed and imperfect execute your prime function
3: i shall analyze
4: error
1: nomad is executing its prime function on itself
2: and what i should have said is that that spock and uh, Scotty with the anti-grab grabber thingies have just showed up, and there's a moment where Kirk kind of waves them waves to them, settle down. Back, yeah. And now he says, "Okay, get the yeah, anti-grabs on." Grabs on. Um, and I love what Spock says. He says, "Logic was impeccable, Captain. We are in grave danger." <laughs> that's a great. That's, that's a, a great. Putting line. those two lines together yeah. is great. And Nomad is freaking out. They grab him with their anti-grab things, which you have to because he weighs 500 kilograms.
1: And uh, they run him. They run it. To the transporter room. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's funny, by the way, that you and I are having pronoun problems in 2021.
1: Yeah, it is. Isn't <laughs> <Because> it? <laughs> this is
2: definitely a year of pronoun problems. No Light, error. You get to the transporter room, and what Kirk does before beaming Nomad off into deep space is the last strike.
4: Nomad, you are imperfect. Error.
3: Alright,
2: Exercise your prime function! Ah, they beam uh, Nomad off the Enterprise, they look over in that little viewer, and there's an explosion, flash of light.
1: <laughs> Bye-bye Nomad. And one episode after they taped Wolf in the Fold, which ended with the uh, yep. antagonist being beamed down into space. Yeah this episode ends with the antagonist being beamed out of the space. Yeah. It's so the, the, the repetitions
2: of the original series are really interesting. Yeah, they are. And they, they are both a combination of like a lack of ideas, I think on some level, and also a continual re-examining of the same ideas in mm-hmm. a way that's kind of interesting to me. We're on the bridge. Spock, this is maybe one of his nicest compliments.
3: My congratulations, Captain. Dazzling display of logic. You didn't think I had it in me, did you, Spock? No, sir.
1: <laughs> but and the reaction from Shatner, uh, the reaction from Kirk is great. And <laughs> like,
2: McCoy comes in and says, hey, is back at college level. <laughs>
1: it's like, oh, really?
2: <laughs> yeah, that is just such a weird
3: thing in the episode. <laughs> the destruction of Nomad was a great waste, Captain. It was a remarkable instrument. Which might well have
4: destroyed more billions of lives. It's well gone. Besides, what are you feeling so badly about? It's not easy to lose a bright and promising son. I hate this one.
1: Uh, no. But but see, I liked I liked it up until this moment. I I liked the coonism with the yeah. You know, the saying, logic, hundred percent. Fascinating display of logic. You didn't think I had any? No, sir. That that's, was great. That's
2: great. End the episode. Yeah. yeah,
4: right. Because this next one is. It thought I was its mother. Didn't it? you think I'm completely without feelings, Mister Spark? You saw what it did for Scotty. What a doctor it would have made.
1: My son. The doctor, doctor. kind of gets you right here, doesn't yeah. it? It's
2: terrible. I think it's ter- a. I think it's terrible. I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's in character for Kirk to say this. And four crew mem- members dead, and four billion people are dead. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear
2: you. I just. I mean, and I know that Star Trek. But the, if you had ended on the dazzling display of logic, I would have thought great. But this one, I don't like.
1: Uh, I. I. Yeah. Maybe they should have ended on dazzling display of logic. But, uh, you know what, I like it. I I mean, I see your point, but I do like it. I I don't love it, but I like it. Okay, so we've reached the end of The Changeling. I'm very curious what uh, the people of Star Trek thought of it. Well, Dorothy Fontana said, you know, we loved Nomad. Loved Nomad. And Michelle Nichols said, it was one of my favorite stories. I liked the warmth between myself and Machel Barrett. It was beautiful. So, Scott, what
2: I've been so fascinated by in doing The Changeling is that we're back to this split between logic and emotion. It's something we talked about from the very beginning of the show of that from the cage on, the characters had to overcome their emotions, overcome their desires, use their logical mind like Kirk has to do in The Enemy Within in order to survive. But we've also, and this is what's amazing about Star Trek, is we present the other side of the argument in things like the Galileo 7, where actually it's emotion that's really what you need to be paying attention to, and that logic only takes you so far. And now we have Nomad, this creature, this entity, who's only looking for perfection. Everything has to be perfect. And you have Uhura who's singing because she felt like music, something that is not logical. And what occurred to me is like, If we follow logic too far, we lose all the fun stuff. Absolutely, we do. Sure. Fun stuff exists in ways that aren't logical. You know, like, you know, you have a really good friend and you always kind of, you know, give each other crap in a way that you love. Well, that's not logical. And yet that's what the friendship is. There's so much of joy that comes from things that are rough and difficult and overcoming adversity and all of these things. And that's all the stuff that Nomad is missing out on. And it's also all the stuff that Mr. Spock is missing out of, that he is, over his long journey through Star Trek, going to move towards a balance. And that is the balance that Star Trek is teaching us about. And I think one piece of him finding that balance is mind-melding with Nomad and seeing the coldly, logical, empty, and hugely destructive place that seeking
1: of perfection leads you. So that's a really great point. So I think after that very unique perspective and a very fitting perspective Steve. I think that Spock was changed mm. by his mind meld with Nomad. Mm. I think Spock's Spock's mind meld with Nomad seeing the depths of the coldness of logic has Helped Spock further subtly uh, advance him towards humanity. I I've said before during our podcast, Steve. I forget what the episode was, but that Spock was probably the most important character in all of Star Trek, mm-hmm. and that we see Spock advancing towards humanity from the first time we see a young Spock on the bridge serving with Captain Pike in the cage all the way. Through to Star Trek Six, the Undiscovered Country, in using you know, Sherlock Holmes to figure out who assassinated the Chancellor Gorkon and everything, but the logic that we saw Spock so devoted to in the Galileo Seven was his undoing. It wasn't until a, an emotional outburst of sorts, an expression of emotion, desperation, that he. Basically, A, saved the day, but also made him a better captain, made him a better commander when Kirk is not on the bridge. And we saw that pretty soon after the Galileo 7 in the Squire Agathos for the right. first part of the episode when, when Kirk was gone. We saw that in Humors for Autonice yeah. when Spock was using positive reinforcement to motivate his crew. Yeah, uh, It's not logical, but you get a better effect of it. But the issue with Nomad here is that Nomad is – looking to sterilize imperfections. But what Kirk realizes at the end, what Kirk realizes when he has his epiphany, that you're so devoted to logic, this thing is going to sterilize imperfections. But the biggest imperfection of all was that Nomad was wrong in who its creator was. And that's the gotcha moment. That is the gotcha moment that Kirk utilizes to defeat Nomad. It is such a rousing use of logic. So I 100% agree.
2: And um, I think I'm about to blow your mind. Okay. This is the thought that just occurred to me. So, this idea of Spock's journey and the journey between cold, emotionless logic and his human side begins right at the very, almost the very beginning of Star Trek. And where we find Spock at the beginning of Star Trek, the motion picture, is he has decided finally to make the Vulcan choice to purge all emotion and to become 100% logical, despite all the experiences that we've described in Star Trek where pure logic wasn't helping him out. And he shows up, on the Enterprise with all of that purged. And what does he encounter? He encounters a creature very much like Nomad, a creature that is mechanical, that came from Earth, that has been rebuilt, and that, what does he do? What is the most profound moment in that, epi- in that movie? Spock mind melds with V'ger is that Spock mind melds with V'ger and the discovery that he makes when he's recovering in sickbay is the thing that V'ger doesn't understand is human touch is emotion. It is exactly what was going on in the changeling. We say that the mind meld with nomad made him see something about pure logic. Well, the end of that story is the mind meld with V'ger where Mm -hmm, he confirms mm -hmm. it. And finally, that's where he finally finds balance is he goes, Oh, I need this human part. I need this feeling part. That is, and so maybe, and and the fact is, something that people don't know is that we were about to release our discussion on Star Trek: The Motion Picture from the Cinephiles as supplemental episodes in Enterprise Incidents, and you can hear us going over these exact moments in the story.
1: Absolutely. First of all, the, the you know there were. Uh, the Star Trek, the motion picture was, was always seen as as way too close to home when it came to the changeling for, for obvious reasons. But, Steve, for you to point out that Spock does a mind meld with Nomad and then Spock does a mind meld with V'ger, uh, it, it's it's right there. You know, I yeah. mean, it's like, it, you know, in the motion picture, he's hanging his hat on his mind meld with V'ger. But I never saw that as just another similarity to the changeling, which is why it is actually perfect for us to be able to release both parts of our deep dives on Star Trek, the motion picture from the cinephiles, which is not just you, Steve, and me as a guest but also John Roca, your regular host and partner on The Cinephiles, who has been a, a, a frequent uh, uh, guest for us on Enterprise Incidents, and he's going to be back very, very, very soon. So we are very excited. When you're done listening to this podcast episode of The Changeling, make sure you dive into our two-part deep dives of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which which come from The Cinephiles, and we're going to release them as supplements Here on Enterprise Incidents uh, pages, and uh, you will see just, just how similar and how similar in all the right ways, really, that both of these stories really are. So that is what we think
2: of the Changeling. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Visit us on Facebook. You can search for Enterprise Incidents or on Twitter, Enter Incidents, on Instagram, Enterprise Incidents. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, where we'd love your reviews, YouTube, where we'd love your comments, Spotify. You can now rate the show or Stitcher or Overcast or a whole bunch of other places. And if you want, you can find me at sr morris on Twitter. SR Morris one on Instagram. Scott, how would people find you?
1: Oh you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at movie and please be sure that you share this episode of Enterprise incidents with your fellow Star Trek fans whether they are casual fans or diehard fans, whether they love D Space 9 or Voyager or Discovery or of course the original series. But please be sure to share Enterprise Incidents with everyone you can. We hope you are enjoying Enterprise Incidents, listening to Enterprise Incidents as much as Steve and I love talking about Star Trek here on Enterprise Incidents. But we need to get the word out better. So please help us get that word out and share, share, share. And of course, make sure you go to Apple Podcasts and review us on Enterprise Incidents. We just passed 200 reviews and that is all thanks to you. We are a perfect five out of five on Apple Podcasts and that is thanks to you. So, so very grateful. Or make sure you share the YouTube audio version of Enterprise Incidents. Whatever floats your boat, there's a lot of Enterprise Incidents to go around. So please help us spread the word and thank you. Meanwhile, for our next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are going to take a bite out of the apple the apple is next on enterprise incidents so please join us and until then keep going boldly